You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... Under my leadership, the United Kingdom will not pursue any relationship with Europe that relies on alignment with EU laws. We must, apparently and still, believe harder in Brexit. Also ahead, Colombia's new president seeks peace with Colombia's last active militia group. We'll wrap up the latest business news and review the European newspapers... And 10, 9, 8, 7, etc. Four stage engines start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. That's all coming up right here on the briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. The UK's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has reiterated that he believes in Brexit, although, as has traditionally been the case among those zealots vouchsafing such pieties, he declined to elaborate on what exactly he believes Brexit to be. Sunak was speaking to the CBI following reports that some senior ministers were coming around to thinking that the six-year yomp in search of sunlit uplands undertaken by the UK since 2000 2016 might be something of a wild goose chase and that perhaps something akin to Switzerland's arrangements with Brussels could be worth contemplating. Well, I'm joined with more on this by George Parker, political editor at the Financial Times. Um, George, first of all, these reports that some ministers were thinking about some sort of Swiss-style deal, what do we know for sure? Well, the report in the Sunday Times said that senior was citing senior government sources saying that um, that this idea of a Swiss-style deal was moving up the agenda um, without naming who the sources were. Um, and, of course, the Sunday Times justifiably has not, not revealed its sources. I think it's fair to say that a number of Eurosceptic Conservative MPs think this sort of sentiment might have been coming from people around Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, of course, was a Remainer, unlike Rishi Sunak, who campaigned for Brexit. Um, but subsequently to all that, Number 10 has desperately tried to quash the idea that Britain might be trying to soften the Brexit deal that was negotiated. Uh, and Jeremy Hunt has also come out publicly and said that, um, you know, that, the, that we're looking sort of to honour the, the spirit of the deal done by Boris Johnson back in 2019-2020. I mean, do we understand what objection the Brexit ultras would have? I mean, are, are they economic objections or is this still dogmatic? I mean, to state the very obvious, Switzerland is not in the EU. Switzerland's not in the EU. It has access to the single market and it, it achieves access to the single market through a series of bilateral deals with the EU, which frankly work to neither side's um, satisfaction, really. But what it does do to get that access is it pays money into the European Union budget and it aligns in certain areas with European Union rules. Now, both of those things are total anathema to British Eurosceptics. Uh, and you've heard from Downing Street uh, this week them saying that any sort of closer trading arrangement with the EU must exclude payments to the EU budget, uh, alignment with European Union rules, accepting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. In other words, all the things that Brussels would demand if it was to give a meaningful, better deal to Britain. 
So should we conclude then that everybody really has forgotten all those referendum-era reassurances that only a total lunatic would contemplate leaving the customs union or the single market even if we did leave the EU? Well, that's right. I mean, when we had the the Brexit referendum back in 2016, a number of Brexiteers said we would stay either in the single market or the customs union. One of the the genius parts, if you can call it a genius part of the Brexit campaign, was nobody really specified exactly what it meant. And then we ended up with Boris Johnson becoming prime minister and delivering the hardest form of Brexit you can imagine, the so-called Canada-style deal, where we were outside of the single market, outside of the customs union. And basically sanctioning ourselves really by throwing a whole load of um, non-tariff barriers, regulatory barriers around our trade with our biggest partners. Now, people like Jeremy Hunt, who's in the, ch- in the Treasury now, are trying to think of ways in which we can soften the Brexit to improve our trading position. And, um, you know, Britain's forecast by the OECD today, in fact, to have the lowest growth of all the major economies over the next two years. And Brexit's not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination, but everyone can see but it's at least a contributory part of the malaise that's affecting the British economy at the moment. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the recently installed Prime Minister, is widely advertised, not least by himself, as a sensible pragmatist. So when he reiterates any rejection of compromise, do you think, as he sees it, that that is economic pragmatism, or is he trying to do that thing as several previous Tory Prime Ministers have tried to do, of placating the hardcore Brexiter wing? Well, then there are a couple of things about that. One is that the British public, let's put aside the Tory Eurosceptics for a moment, the British public are fed up to the back teeth of hearing about Brexit. So I think Rishi Sunak, with some justification, doesn't want to re-litigate the whole Brexit debate of the last five years. So he basically says the deal deal is done. But, of course, he's looking over his shoulder at the Eurosceptics in his party, who basically conspired to bring down well, at least three of the last four Conservative Prime Ministers over the last five years. So they are, they are a problem to be managed by any Conservative Prime Minister. So I think what Rishi Sunak thinks is, as you say, he's a pragmatist, he's a numbers guy, he used to work for Goldman Sachs. I don't think emotionally he's a Brexiteer. I think he thought um, wrong, wrongly, in my view, that this would liberate the British economy in some way, which lots of people would say it obviously has not. But I think he thinks that if he can engineer better relations with the EU first of all, by settling the long-standing and corrosive dispute about Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol, that eventually both sides will see it's in their mutual interest to improve trading relations. But of course, that gets you back into the, all the old debates about cakeism, the idea that you can be outside the EU but still benefit from the advantages of being in the single market, which the EU has repeatedly said is not an option. I mean, that desire on Sunak's part to just make the whole thing go away and never speak of it again, do you perceive echoes of that in what uh, Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, had to say to the CBI as well? Uh, He reiterated that from where he stands, there is, I quote, no case uh, for the UK to return to the EU. Exactly. I mean, we just to give a little plug to an FT film that we made recently called The Brexit Effect, we called this a conspiracy of silence um, amongst British Britain's political elite. The fact is the Conservatives don't really want to reopen this debate about Brexit, but neither does the opposition Labour Party. Um, I think something around 30% of Labour supporters backed Brexit in the 2016 referendum. And Keir Starmer is very conscious of the fact if you start talking about it again, you alienate the very voters you need to win back who subsequently voted for Boris Johnson in the 2019 general election. So Keir Starmer is very keen to avoid talking about Brexit. He 
gave a speech to the CBI Employers Conference today where he rejected any sort of idea that we might return to the free movement of labor or more liberal migration regime. So both the, part, both the main parties are refusing really to have an honest debate about the problems that Brexit has caused. And until you start having an honest debate about that, it's very hard to have a proper debate about how you start fixing them. George Parker at the Financial Times. Thank you, as always, for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle 24's Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Russia has said that it no longer intends to topple the Ukrainian government. This marks a departure from the beginning of the Russian invasion in February, when Moscow attempted to overthrow the Ukrainian government and install a puppet regime in Kyiv. Officials in Beijing have closed parks, shopping centres and museums and resumed mass testing for COVID-19. It comes as China battles a spike in cases. Many people have pushed back against the measures amid concerns that fresh lockdowns will be implemented. A jury is to begin deliberating in the trial of five people accused of the attack on the U.S. Capitol in January 2021. The group, which is known as the Oath Keepers, is accused of seditious conspiracy, constructing offices and destroying government property. And European ministers are meeting in Paris to negotiate a huge funding boost for the continent's space programmes. The European Space Agency wants 22 nations to back a budget of 18.7 billion euros over the next few years. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Now, the 2016 deal between the government of Colombia and pestilential militia group FARC was a considerable diplomatic accomplishment, winding down half a century of war and garnering the Nobel Peace Prize for Colombia's then-president and repeat Monocle 24 guest, Juan Manuel Santos. It did not completely end the conflict, however, and Colombia's new president, Gustavo Petro, seems intent on doing exactly that. His government has reactivated dormant talks with the last rebel group still active, the Marxist militants of the National Liberation Army or ELN. I'm joined with more on this by Anastasia Maloney, Monocle's correspondent in Bogota. Um, Anastasia, first of all, the ELN themselves, at this point, how serious an outfit are they? Um, Well, they're very serious an outfit in the sense that they can Uh, cause um, serious damage to uh, communities living in rural Colombia. Um, They have uh, combatants between 4,000 and 5,000, depending on who who you ask. Um, They are still considered an active force. As you just mentioned, they have started peace negotiation talks with the Colombian government yesterday in Caracas in Venezuela. Um, They're still very much at the initial stage, but the ELN seem to be at least in public committed to exploring these these peace talks, which um, many say will take months, if not years. Um, But if they weren't at the negotiating table, they would still be um, an important, significant uh, guerrilla force that causes uh, problems in Colombia and does uh, control parts of southern Colombia and border areas. How much militia activity is there still despite the peace agreement? Um, There's quite a lot. Um, In fact, on Sunday, um, the uh, government reported that 18 people had died in clashes between what are called FARC dissident groups. Uh, These are factions that rejected the 2016 peace deal with the government. Um, There are about 2,500 combatants that make up various factions of the FARC dissidents. And the clashes between these two groups on Sunday, where 18 people died, just shows that 
that they are very much still um, active, particularly in the southern provinces of Colombia. Um, they are trying to expand their territory to take over more control of particularly areas that are drug trafficking routes, that are um, rich with gold, gold mining. Um, and they are still very much active, as well as other armed groups and organized crime groups. So for Gustavo Petro, he's obviously inherited uh, these problems that have been uh, structural problems that no government has been able to solve for 60, 60 years now. Um, but his policy has been, look, um, we know that this violence exists. I'm offering an olive branch. I'm offering to negotiate um, and start some sort of dialogue with any armed group that's willing to talk with the government. That's been his strategy so far. I mean, President Petro could reasonably make the case that he knows the militia groups better than most uh, political interlocutors, given that he was, as a much younger man, a member of one. Does he hope that that will give him some leverage, some credibility with the remaining militias? Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear that the ELN um, have started, restarted peace talks with the government, Gustavo Petro, precisely because... Um, there is empathy and understanding between uh, the president and the ELN because, as you just said, Petro was himself a former guerrilla member. So they feel that they can trust him. There is this implicit trust and understanding uh, between them, which is precisely why they are negotiating. And Petro said to all the armed groups and the factions and the FARC dissidents in Colombia, he said, look, during my presidency, I am offering you to, um, negotiating. I want to strike peace deals with you, um, obviously in exchange for information about drug trafficking, um, handing back seized land and um, even reduced prison uh, sentences. So it is um, likely perhaps that other groups will come forward. Um, I think they are looking at how the ELN peace negotiations are going to progress. Um, but that's his strategy so far. He's pledged total peace in Colombia. And that means basically negotiating peace with any type of armed group. Is there a political risk here for Petro, though? I mean, famously, uh, President Santos's deal failed at the first time of asking when it was put to a referendum because it turned out that quite a lot of Colombia's people weren't all that keen uh, with making any kind of concessions to these militant groups. Yes, I don't think that Petro would put any sort of peace deal to the referendum precisely because it fell the last time. And, you know, that would be sort of political suicide to do that. Um, however, he is still popular. Um, government polls give him about, sorry, um, polls give him about sort of 60 percent approval rating. Um, so he's still got a bit of political leverage. He's got through a very important tax reform in Congress. He has some... Uh, political leverage that he could use uh, to persuade many Colombians who are against uh, making peace deals with guerrilla groups that um, he's in a position to do so and that um, if Colombians do want proper total peace in, in the country, across the whole country, including the rural areas, jungle areas, outside of the city, then he's the best man to do it. So he still has, he's still popular enough to sell that argument. But as you say, um, there are many Colombians that are simply not interested and don't agree with any kind of peace deals made with rebel groups. Anastasio Maloney in Bogota, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 20.
It's time now on the briefing to take a look at the latest business news with Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Um, Ewan, we did drop the B word Brexit a bit earlier on and in in perhaps not coincidental news, uh, we have further gloomy forecasts for the UK economy. Yes, I'm not going to mention that word myself. I try not to. But Britain is going to plunge to the bottom of the glee table for growth in the G7. This is according to forecasts out today from the OECD. Now, the uh, Club of uh, Rich Nations reckons that UK output will contract by 0.4% next year and will expand, barely expand by 0.2% in 2024. That makes it the worst of those major seven economies. Germany is the only other economy forecast uh, to shrink next year. But the OECD reckons that its economy will bounce back better in 2024. Now, uh, rising interest rates is a key part of this story. The OECD thinks that they're going to rise to 4.5% from the current level of 3%. And they'll probably stay there right through to the end of 2024. So that is at least another two years at those uh, elevated rates, although nobody really knows that for sure. Now, the problem for the UK is it is facing a a twin crisis of both the gas price shock, which is affecting economies right around Europe and causing a lot of difficulties for uh, a lot of consumers and businesses, but also a very tight labor market uh, like we're seeing in the US. Of course, a tight labor market is very good news for job seekers, but it is also causing problems for lots of companies. It's causing problems in particular sectors of the economy and in particular parts of the country where there is a real shortage of people to do work. That is uh, driving up wages. Again, on the face of it, that is good news for workers and difficult for companies, uh, but it does uh, uh, not keeping up with inflation. We've got inflation at 11% in the UK and wages are not rising anything close to that. So it is a mixed picture on the labour market, but on growth, uh, the OECD uh, says pretty bad news. Uh, we also have better or at least diverting news from Canada's housing market. Yeah, for 25 years, Canada has been in the grip of the world's biggest housing boom, a near unbroken uh, run of price appreciation, pretty much unparalleled amongst uh, its peers. Well, now it is very much over and the pain is starting to spread. This is the subject of today's Bloomberg Big Take. It's our daily uh, deep dive into a big issue. Uh, Soaring interest rates, uh, the problem again in Canada, and they have really crushed demand and sent house prices uh, really tumbling. Uh, In our story, we give the example of Cam Lai, who recently found himself sitting in a car with his wife and two kids, uh, watching prospective buyers tour his uh, modest townhouse in Toronto's suburbs. He'd taken out a second and then a third mortgage on the property during the pandemic uh, after his uh, family's finances got tight. That was uh, after the his home's value had gone up by 60%. House prices in Toronto in particular really soaring during the pandemic. But now uh, they are falling uh, back down to earth and a lot of people are being forced to sell. Now, Canada is not the only part of the world where this is happening. Uh, prices are uh, falling in about a dozen developed economies from Australia to Sweden and to the US. But Canada has been a real trailblazer with this. Ewan Potts, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24.
You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Time now to take a leaf through the morning papers from Europe and elsewhere with the broadcaster, journalist and former Vatican correspondent, Juliet Lindley, who joins us from our headquarters in Zurich. Um, Juliet, we're starting with the New York Times, uh, which is trying to figure out what on earth Earth's richest individual thinks he's doing with Twitter. Indeed, Andrew. Hello from Zurich. So, yeah, thanks to interviews with former employees at Elon Musk's other companies, this New York Times article really brings to the fore what seems to be a blueprint for how Musk's crisis domestic politics seems to be done, if you will. So he seems to have developed a playbook for managing his companies, including Tesla and SpaceX, as well as Twitter now, through periods of pain, uh, employing shock treatment and alarmism and pushing his workers to and himself to put aside facts family and friends and spend all of their energy on his mission, going full tilt, nonstop, essentially. So just as he's now making headlines at Twitter with office closures and layoffs, back in 2018 with Tesla, he was lamenting his company was on the brink of bankruptcy, dismissing employees and sleeping at the office. And at the time, Musk told people that, yeah, he was sleeping on the factory floor and not leaving the factory. That SpaceX as well. In 2017, Musk said he needed to perform rocket launch every two weeks or face bankruptcy. So using the word bankruptcy to fire up employees, he's used the word again more recently at the rocket maker. And at Twitter these days, Musk is very much in full crisis mode, Andrew, as we can see. And as a former Tesla employee put it, a crisis atmosphere and self-imposed austerity gives Musk the cover to make drastic changes and fire top managers and large numbers of staff. And it prepares those who remain to work under extreme conditions. Andrew, however, unlike what happened at Tesla and SpaceX, which were high risk, high reward, if you will, it's unclear if Musk will find the means to motivate employees at Twitter the same way. Um, Because their quests at the previous companies were, you know, they wanted to move people away from gas powered cars or send humans into space. But for Twitter employees, the risk is high. But What's the reward that comes out of it, Andrew? That's what many are asking themselves. So I guess we have to consider the possibility that despite all appearances, Musk does in fact know what he's doing. Um, Let's move (laughs) along to Corriere della Sera. The Italian government is approving the 2023 budget bill. Indeed. So the right-wing government of Giorgia Meloni worked late into the night to approve its first budget. And it's a package focusing on taming, of course, Italians' massive energy bills and cutting taxes for payroll workers and the self-employed. Now, the 2023 budget bill was approved around half past midnight, and it now needs to be green-lighted before the end of the year by MPs. Now, Andrew, the measures total almost 35 billion euro in all, and Rome plans to fund around 60% of it by ramping up budget deficit to four and a half percent next year. Other uh, funding sources include a rise in a windfall tax on energy companies. Whereas with with regards to the citizens wage, the reddito di cittadinanza, as it's known, it was a scheme for jobless Italians. And this is going to be tightened and eventually scrapped within a year because it was widely seen as actually discouraging people from actively seeking, uh, seeking jobs, if you wish. One of the most contentious measures in the budget bill is an amnesty on tax arrears of up to a thousand euro predating 2016. They're known as condoni, these these measures, uh, amnesties, if you wish, and um, not uncommon in Italy, but of course, many see them as encouraging tax dodging in the country. Now, uh, Andrew, a flat tax will be introduced for the self-employed, uh, raising the threshold to 85,000 euro. 
But a controversial measure known as the marriage bonus is not featuring, after all, in the budget package. It had been mooted by the Conservative Lega and originally aimed to give couples who married in church a 200 euro bonus. Of course, opposition politicians were quick to point out Italy is a secular state. So the Lega then conceded to amend the proposed bill to include all weddings for couples earning less than 23 grand. But Meloni's government scrapped that. And by the way, the Prime Minister herself is uh, living with a gentleman, Andrea Gianbruno, but not married to him and they have a child together. There Scan- you go, Andrew. Scandalous. Um, another story I know you wanted to point out was uh, it's being reported by the BBC. This is looking at the potential psychiatric benefits of ice cream. There we go. Well, I was drawn to this article initially because of the colourful ice cream truck that was illustrating the report, Andrew. It's all pastel pinks and aquamarine. And the the truck, on the sides of it, they're printed all sorts of eye-catching slogans like grief wallops, mini milks, chalk ices plus existential despair. It's basically the story of London artist Annie Nicholson, who lost all of her closest family members in a tragic helicopter crash 11 years ago. You can imagine the shock and devastation that that caused. But eventually she decided she wanted to help other people affected by grief and loss via the comforting, sumptuous sweetness of ice cream. So the idea of a van, of an ice cream van, came to her during the pandemic. She called this candy-colored van the Fandango Whip. Fandango was her family nickname. And she's been taking the truck to festivals, parks, art galleries, offering people ice creams, packaged in wrapping with questions around grief and loss and how people were even coping during the pandemic with the isolation at the time. And she then offers those who wish to to join workshops run by professionals. Juliet Lindley in Zurich, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Finally, on today's show, NASA has taken one small step towards recreating its giant leap. The Orion capsule of the Artemis 1 mission has completed a pass 130 kilometres above the surface of the Moon. It is the first craft capable of carrying humans to have visited the Moon since Apollo 17 departed 50 years ago next month. Well, I'm joined with more on this by David Whitehouse, space scientist and author. Um, David, first of all, why is this mission significant? It's significant because, as you say, it's the return of humans back to the moon. This is a a run through with the Orion capsule, which uh, there are live pictures from inside the capsule. And you can see the test dummy sitting in the seat, complete with helmet and radiation monitors. And uh, it really does look as though there is somebody there. But in two years time, there will be. This is a test run of the first human mission to go and fly around the moon. And then when if that works uh, to land on the moon a year or two later. So this is really the first time in 50 years we're going back to the moon. If the objectives of Artemis and Apollo are fundamentally similar, do they differ in any other way? I mean, what have we learned about how the technology has developed in half a century? Well, there are there are several reasons why this is much better than Apollo, although Apollo was historic as being the first voyages to the moon. First of all, the technology we have today is far better. It enables to do far more things and also to use the moon as a stepping stone to go on to Mars, develop the technology you need for the much longer and more difficult mission to go to Mars. But also the moon we know today is not the moon of the Apollo astronauts. We have learned so much more about it with 
unmanned probes orbiting it and sometimes even landing on its surface that there's so much more we understand to explore on the moon and the landing site for the next people on the moon will actually be far away from the apollo landing site it'll be at the south pole because we know that there is water ice there to be explored and investigated which would be the basis for a moon base so our moon of uh, of artemis is very different from what was once regarded as the sterile, dry, um, uninteresting moon of the Apollo days. Well, further on that thought, I mean, it is obviously the case with any scientific endeavour that you don't necessarily end up getting answers as such, but you just come back with a lot of better questions. Fifty years ago, you know, anything they brought back from the moon was a result. Moon rock was itself an exciting novelty. Um, what more have we learnt about the moon since then, and what more do we hope to find out? You, you mentioned the, the potential water ice there is, but uh, are there any other things that they would be looking for once they return? We now know from examining the, the moon rocks and also examining uh, rocks on the surface of Mars with rovers there, we now have a more complete understanding of the history of the solar system, um, particularly the history of our sun, which is embedded and recorded in the lunar soil because it's unchanging there. Any such history that was recorded on Earth has been wiped away by erosion and weathering, and it's just not there anymore. So we get a unique view of the history of our solar system, of the history of the Earth and all the other planets by examining these materials on the moon. Also, of course, we need to understand the materials there because not only from the water we could find there, we need to understand how to build a moon base there and use the materials around to construct uh, habitats, domes, etc. But also there are people who uh, look at lunar soil, the lunar as a resource that is possible even perhaps not in the near future, but a little bit longer than that, to return helium-3 from the lunar soil, which is present in small quantities, which could be a really valuable energy source for the Earth. David Whitehouse, thank you as always for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'll be back with the Monocle Daily at 1800 later today. Thanks very much for listening.